from the WJFF Studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, the student journalists of Manor, Inc. Manor, Inc. is the youth-driven, community-supported monthly newspaper published by the Livingston Manor Free Library. And today, we'll be bringing you some of their stories live. Joining us live in studio today are Manor, Inc.'s Zoe McGee and Rachel Zuckerman, plus mentor Art Steinhauer. Zoe brings us her cover story on developer Randy Lewis's plans for a new shop and office complex on Main Street in Livingston Manor. And Rachel wrote a story about a special person in her life, her brother Mikey, who has autism spectrum disorder. Plus, we talked to Royal Rock Farm about the incredible, edible, and expensive egg. And an update on the frigid temperatures from New York State Commissioner of Homeland Security and Emergency Services. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Officials in East Palestine, Ohio, have declared an emergency after 50 cars from a freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed last night, erupting into an ongoing massive blaze. NPR's Amy Held reports that officials say at this point nobody's been hurt. But authorities are warning people to stay out of the area. The train on its way from Illinois to Pennsylvania derailed around 9 o'clock last night just before the Pennsylvania state line in a downtown area of East Palestine, Ohio, sparking a huge fire that raged through the night. By daybreak, East Palestine Fire Chief Keith Drabeck said multiple explosions were ongoing, forcing firefighters to leave the scene. Until we can get a better grasp of exactly which cars in that train are burning, and what product is burning for the safety of our people. We have pulled them out. Drabik says the air quality remains good, but it's not safe within a mile of the derailment. If you decided to remain in that area after the mandatory evacuations, please stay in your home. If you have to come to East Palestine, don't. Stay out of the area. A shelter is open for residents. Amy Held, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken leaving open the possibility of traveling to China, but for now his diplomatic visit to Beijing that had been planned for this weekend is off because of that Chinese balloon spotted over Montana this week. We are going to remain uh, engaged with the PRC as this ongoing issue uh, is resolved. Uh, The first step is getting the surveillance asset out of our airspace. Uh, and that's what we're focused on. China claims the balloon is used for weather research and that winds blew it off. Of course, the Pentagon is dismissing that claim and is uh, also acknowledging reports of a second balloon flying over Latin America. The Memphis Police Department has fired a sixth police officer who was involved in that traffic stop that led to the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols last month. Here's NPR's Adrian Florido. In body cam video of the traffic stop, Officer Preston Hemphill is seen firing a taser at Nichols, who gets away. After other officers catch him nearby, Hemphill can be heard saying he hopes they, quote, stomp Nichols. Those five other officers did and were later fired and charged with murder. Hemphill was initially suspended. In the statement announcing his firing, the Memphis PD said he'd violated policy. Officials have also suspended the licenses of two EMTs who waited nearly 20 minutes to start treating Nichols, even as he writhed in pain on the ground. Nichols' family has demanded that every officer and first responder on scene that day be fired. Officials have said more dismissals and criminal charges could come. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Memphis. A family of a black man killed by Minneapolis police during a no-knock raid on an apartment last year has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the city. A SWAT officer fatally shot 22-year-old Amir Locke while serving a search warrant as part of a homicide investigation last February. This is NPR. New England is in the middle of a cold snap this weekend. Bryce Williams is with the National Weather Service in Boston, where a wind chill warning remains in effect. Boston has seen wind chills of negative 30 uh, six times in the last 78 years. So, And it generally seems to be, looking back at the data, look to be about once every 13 years or so. So it's not unprecedented uh, by any means, but it is unusual, certainly in, in the recent memory. The National Weather Service says the northeast highest peak, Mount Washington, saw wind chills dip to 108 degrees below zero last night. As it marks World Cancer Day, the World Health Organization is calling for action to tackle breast cancer, one of the most common and deadliest cancers in the world. 
Lisa Schlein in Geneva reports more than 2.3 million cases of breast cancer occur each year. Breast cancer is a deeply inequitable disease, and survival largely depends on where women live. WHO non-communicable disease expert Bente Mickelson says nearly 80% of deaths from breast and cervical cancer occur in poor countries. Breast cancer survival is 50% or less in many low- and middle-income countries and greater than 90% for those able to receive the best care in high-income countries. WHO reports 2.5 million lives could be saved by 2040 if women with breast cancer in poor countries and poor women in rich countries get the treatment needed to beat this disease. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva. And I'm Joel Snyder. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The student journalists of Manor, Inc. are here, and we'll be talking to them soon. But first, the frigid weather. The wind chill warning remains in effect until noon today. Here at our Liberty Studios, the official temperature is minus one, but it feels like negative 16. The extremely cold temperatures in the Northeast have state and local officials warning residents to take precautions. Among the concerns in such cold weather are the danger of frostbite and fires from unsafe home heating. For an update on the New York State response, New York Public Radio's Ian Pickus spoke to Commissioner of Homeland Security and Emergency Services, Jackie Bray. We expect the really low temperatures to last till midday Saturday. Around 1 p.m. Saturday, it's going to start its warming. Um, So these are very cold temps, but it's also a very short event, which is the good news. What are some areas of the state that you're particularly concerned about? Well, we're most concerned about where the wind chills will be lowest. So uh, the North Country, uh, Central New York, the Capital Region, the Hudson Valley are the places that are going to see the lowest wind chills uh, in many locations. Um, So that's what, you know, worries us the most is, is people being outside in temps like that. It's about 10 minutes before you start to develop frostbite on any uncovered skin when you get to negative 30 and below. Uh, And obviously, hypothermia is another serious concern of ours. Well, along those lines, what is the state's response? What is the state doing uh, to sort of make sure people aren't in those conditions? The first thing the state was doing was talking to all of our county emergency managers, making sure that everyone had the resources they needed and knew exactly what was coming so that they could prepare. Uh, That included making sure with our partners in social services that all of the counties had activated their code blue plans. Code blue, blue plans get activated for the unhoused population, for the homeless population, to help bring them indoors when the temperatures are dangerous to be sleeping outside. The second thing the state did was coordinate with our critical infrastructure partners, particularly on um, fuel and heating and electricity, to make sure that everyone had enough fuel Uh, from a critical infrastructure perspective, that everyone was prepared to really keep the heat on, keep the systems running over the next 24 hours. And then finally, we're working to get the word out to make sure that New Yorkers themselves aren't surprised. You know, um, in Texas in recent days, there have been um, widespread power outages amid uh, the extreme cold that moved through that state. Are you keeping an eye on, you know, the potential that people will not be able to heat their homes or that the added stress of, you know, heating might lead to outages here in New York? Yeah, our grid is far stronger than the Texas grid. It's really we have as a state and our critical infrastructure private partners have invested in our grid. We do not expect any widespread power outages. I want to be clear about that. But, yes, we have been talking with um our, our power providers, um, talking to our electricity transmission um, uh, partners, uh, you know, 
what Texas saw was not only extreme cold, but also an ice storm uh, that brought a lot of their lines down. We don't expect that here in New York. We do expect this to be a short-lived event, which helps from this perspective of fuel supply uh, and transmission. Uh, but I'm confident that we're not going to see the major problems that other places have seen. We might see some scattered power outages, uh, but where we do, we'll get that uh, that power turned back on quickly. On a more local uh, level, do you have any uh, safety tips or warnings for people who, you know, are going to be heating their own homes, possibly changing uh, the way that they go about their weekend this weekend? Uh, What's your advice? Yeah, such an important question. So number one, if you can stay indoors, we want you to do that. Uh, If you don't have a reason that you absolutely must be outside, don't be outside. That goes for your pets, too. If it's too dangerous for you to be out, it's too dangerous for them to be out. Um, And then if you are going to be taking added measures to heat your home, whether that's in your wood-burning fireplace or uh, uh, your, you know, electric heaters, Make sure that you know how to stay safe. Electric heaters need to be three feet or more away from anything like curtains or blankets. Um, And you want to make sure that, you know, when you're using your wood-bearing fireplace, that your chimney is clear, that your flue is open. Uh, We do see an increase in residential and home fires during temperatures like this. But we, uh, we want you to stay warm, but we want you to do it safely. That was New York State Commissioner of Homeland Security and Emergency Services, Jackie Bray, speaking with New York Public Radio's Ian Pickus. Today's forecast, uh, warmer than yesterday, a high of 18. Tonight's low, 12. And tomorrow, a high of 44. We'll take a break. And when we come back, the student journalists of Manor, Inc. Live, this is Radio Catskill. This is Radio Catskill. There are two warming shelters in Sullivan County, and both of them will be open every night of the winter season. The Monticello Warming Shelter is located at the Ted Strobel Recreation Center at 10 Jefferson Street, across from the Government Center. The Liberty Warming Shelter is located in the Liberty United Methodist Church, 170 North Main Street. Each shelter is open every night from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. This is Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. President Joe Biden will give the annual State of the Union address Tuesday. El presidente Joe Biden dará el discurso anual del Estado de la Unión martes. And for the first time, NPR News is offering bilingual live coverage and analysis in English and Spanish. Y por primera vez, NPR News ofrece cobertura y análisis bilingüe en vivo en inglés y español. Join us. Acompáñanos. Listen to Radio Catskill on air or listen online in español at wjffradio.org. Tuesday night at 9. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every month, the student journalists of Manor, Inc. bring listeners their current stories from the paper. And this month, we're pleased to welcome them live in studio. Joining us here live today are Manor, Inc.'s Zoe McGee and Rachel Zuckerman and mentor Art Steinhauer. Good morning, everybody. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Art, uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with Manor, Inc., can you let people know about the paper? Sure. Um, Manor, Inc., was formed about 10 years ago uh, with the demise of our local newspaper before that, the Town Crier, the um, Burnston Manor Free Library Board and others in town had the idea we should start our own community newspaper in Livingston Manor. Thus, Manor Inc. was born, but with the idea that we should involve the students at the Manor High School in preparing writing the newspaper. Um, So we've now published over a hundred issues and have expanded beyond just Livingston Manor. Many of our reporters now come from other school districts. Uh, Zoe here is homeschooled. Rachel is with, uh, goes to school in Livingston Manor. We have reporters from Roscoe. We have some from Monticello. Uh, occasionally in the past, we have reporters from Liberty High School too. So, um, You've got a, a good group. And how does that work? Do the students generate the story ideas or do they come from the mentors as well? Or is it a combination of things? Yes, uh, both. We meet weekly. Once a week, we have an editorial roundtable where uh, ideas for the stories are generated and assignments are made. And the reporters go off and with interviews and research and prepare the stories for the next issue. And you guys report on a lot of things that um, are, of course, high school related, but really a lot of things that are in the news, too. I remember there were stories recently about the merger between Livingston Manor and Roscoe schools. You spoke to the superintendent of schools. I think you had interviews during the election with some of our uh, candidates for for office as well. So some really serious journalism stuff there. 
Yes, the idea was this would not be a school newspaper that would solely focus on the school, but it would be a community newspaper that would focus on what was going on in the community and the expanded community, meaning Sullivan County, uh, Sullivan County and frankly, whatever interests the students. So a couple of years ago when, you know, the protests began over the Black Lives Matter, we covered that. Uh, you know, what was happening locally on, on, a, on a national issue. Yeah, you covered it extensively, too. And this month's cover story is about what's going on in the community. Zoe McGee is here, and she has that story. Zoe, that's about what's going on uh, with a kind of a makeover on Main Street, huh? And and what's, what, what's going on there? What, what, what's the story about on the cover? Well, there is a huge addition coming to Main Street in Livingston Manor recently. The old stolen building at 44 Main Street was torn down. The, that building and 42 Main Street is owned by Randy Lewis, who is the co-owner and co-founder of Global Natural Foods. He also is a partner in the Catskill Brewery. And he has a plan to renovate and rebuild these buildings. Yeah, and uh, you got to go to Catskill Brewery and and speak to Randy, and um, we have a little bit of that interview, okay? Yeah. Okay. 44, the block building that we tore down, was a part of um, was a part of the um, a storage facility for a general store that was there, and at one time they kept the frozen products or cold products in that building. That that building and the one beside it, um, 1920, 1930. It's when those buildings were built. Um, we had hoped originally to preserve both buildings, including the stone block, because I always thought it was kind of a cool building with a nice facade, a beautiful facade that I thought we could turn it into like some version of an Irish pub, at least that kind of aesthetic, an old Irish pub. But uh, it was too unstable. Like it was cracking in various places that made it structurally um, risky to try and do anything to it. We had a plan to stabilize it from the inside while we did the renovation. Every contractor that I took through the building said, you, you, you need to tear this down. So it wasn't savable? It was not savable without spending a lot of extra money to do it. And even then, they still said it might have fallen down. Now, the guys who tore it, who took it down said, it was almost ready to fall down. Oh. Parts of it, which is very dangerous. We should have gotten to it a long time ago, but couldn't get contractors. Well, about the new building, tell us about the project being developed. Uh, several years ago, when we came up with the original plan, pre-COVID, again, this dates all the way back to about 2018, when we really started this plan, we got a grant to help with the development of this building. You may remember, and just to confuse things further, that we also got a grant for the Riverwalk. But the Riverwalk grant was not awarded in the first year. It was awarded in the second year, and that's when the whole project changed a little bit. This project was a part of the original Riverwalk, but really not the second. So I went and sought out other funding from a different grant pool in order to put this plan together. So what we're going to do here is um, there'll be retail in 42 Main Street. We're building the building such that there can be two or three ground floor retail spaces. Beyond the brewery and what's ever happened since, what we try and continue to do is, is just incremental development in the town. You know, something so even what will ultimately, I'm leaving it kind of open as to what retail goes in here. Because what I'm looking at, what is... Uh, something that's complementary to what already exists in town and doesn't compete directly with, with somebody else. We wanted to add to the town, not dilute what we already have. We have, we have a wonderful base of business. Um, my offices have to go there, so that's a great justification for us in building the, first, the thing in the first place. But then the other part of it is developing the park. We're going to create a beautiful park that gets used. We can do events in the park, concerts, that kind of stuff. We're also hoping to do some art-related things that, again, are complementary to CAS and in partnership with CAS. Just to use that space, make it a part of the community. You know, we did the farmer's market there um, up until this past year because we expected to be building last summer. 
Um, we expected to be starting the demolition last summer and we lost a year um, just because of delays. But we now it'll be, I think, and then if the river walk gets done, now we get a, a flow of traffic in the town. It really changes the community quite a bit. It's another add-on that really, and remember from that river walk and from the park, you've got spectacular views of the school. You know, it's a beautiful school. Yeah. How's the project done? What point is it at? So it's really just started. Even though we've had drawings for two years, the better part of two years, we've, we've changed them at, at various times. Um, we are now in the stage of, I just got a schedule the other day, of construction evolution. Um, it's very ambitious. And so I'm gonna add a couple of months on. I think by the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, we're completed. Wow. The park development and landscaping of the park, uh, I think we will, we'll see when we really start to tackle that. Um, I think we have to re-engage on the Riverwalk conversation because if there is potential for the Riverwalk funding to be there and it therefore connecting this key piece, these two parks together, and the Riverwalk element, well now you've got several people vested and you may remember that we did community visioning, visioning sessions. So when we get to that point, they're gonna to start to see, what I'm hoping is they start to see the construction happening then they start to feel a little pressure. Okay, we better re-engage. The existing building that's left, it's gonna get lifted three feet. We are lifting the building up. We are, there's a basement in it now with only very minor mechanicals. That should completely flood proof it, so we will never have an issue of flooding. The building, the way it stands now, 42 Main Street, is about a foot and a half above grade. It has flooded another 16 to 18 inches on the inside. Do you remember when the title company was there? They had built their filing cabinets. They had built boxes under them that were 12 inches or so, and it had flooded up past that. So that was the point of the project, too. In order to save these buildings, the best way to save them and create a problem-free, flood-resistant building for the future is to lift them up. So it's gonna be, I think that's gonna be one of the most fascinating things for everybody in town to see is when that building gets lifted, because it's gonna sit lifted for a little while. And that's one of the reasons why, they, when we came to them and said, hey, this is what I'll do with it, when I'm gonna, when I'm gonna renovate these buildings, let me do this, and again, that's part of the reason we got the funding. It was about creating jobs, um, a redevelopment of space, two key considered to be historical buildings in town, and flood proofing them. So this building is LEED certified. I don't know if it's LEED or spelled out. It is. But um, will the new building also be LEED certified? No. We don't have an intention to do the certification of the building. However, in all elements of the renovation, we are using LEED guidelines for, for almost everything because that's the way to build building that's there now that's left that is getting raised that building's gonna be twice as big before we rebuild 44 42 gets twice as big we're building off the we lift the whole thing new foundation under the whole thing and adding on a whole new side you, basically in order to accomplish you know again I, I i look at these things also as a real estate investment too right so we want a certain amount of real retail, retail spaces um, you want to, you know, have a certain cap rate out of the building to make this kind of investment. I justify it by simply putting my office there. But in these spaces down there, we want them to be big enough to be either the two spaces or potentially three. One third small space. And imagine if you come off the street and then walk down the deck in front of shops, they still have street visibility. You know, it works. And I think it changed again. It's all, to me, it changes the whole feel of town. One last main question, what is, exactly is the Riverwalk project? Well, it was sort of a town community-based um, effort to rejuvenate the green space in town. But stepping, going back before that a little bit, you know, after we built the brewery, the Riverwalk, they came to me. The, the county came to me. Certain people in the county came to me and said, hey, you know, you own this property. I, I, I actually, I guess I'm misremembering a little bit what was this, it's so long ago. 
we that because river walk funds were awarded in 2016 we started to develop our plans and i guess what happened was because of the people that i've met in the county the powers that be the ida um they came to me and said you know listen there's funding out there we could maybe do something and i would i don't i don't want to take credit for the idea for the river walk um but i guess when we walked behind the buildings at some point after that we bought ours it somehow that thing that idea hatched i don't know how it where it came from um but let's call it the community i, I think just people coming together and talking it out when we did all the visioning sessions we started them here we were meeting every single week it really centered around our building when the second application a year it was separate of the building it was to get the river walk done in the park remembering that i own the park the yeah. one in the center of yeah. town yeah. right yeah then it then it became we did the river walk grant separate and then i did the grant the separate grant for this i personally have a vision for the park. I know what I want the park to look like. You know, that welcomes people, it gets utilized, it's complementary to the building and, you know, the deck access to the park and that kind of stuff. And a really big part of it for me is is spaces, flowers and gardens, perennial gardens, you know, use it as a little bit of a teaching thing. Um landscaping is a job. Uh you know, it's a design type position we have constant demand out here for landscape that that's a thing and young kids need to know that and that there's opportunities in that field and my hope is to in this project and in that park and in that beautiful waterfall and dam that we have there to whether we do fly fishing demonstrations there is some visibility for the fly fishing museum in this park you know this again is complementary to cast cast is complementary to this and everything else that we've you know invested in here that was Zoe McGee of Manor Inc speaking to developer Randy Lewis about a new development in Livingston Manor uh and i guess you guys you the paper came out this week and there's already been some feedback about the plans for development yes well i got some from some people uh when they saw the picture of the planned building and 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 got the reaction sort of wow that doesn't look like Livingston Manor. Uh I don't know what you two think of it. What do you think of the design, Zoe? I think it's a little too modern for Livingston Manor, but honestly, I don't really have an opinion until I see the actual building. Yeah, and these are preliminary designs and things could change, but you can find the uh, the development's uh designs and this article from Zoe in the current issue of Manor Inc. And Zoe is here uh, live with us in studio, along with Rachel Zuckerman. And Zoe, um, when you go do these interviews, you you go back to school, to your to your to home. And uh, how long does it take you to get the article together, and and then eventually into print? How long did this one take? Um. Well, to write this whole thing, it took about five hours because I had to listen to the recording of the interview and then write it and then organize it. So it's a process. Yeah, it's uh, and it's a big story, too. It's the cover story. Yeah. Do you have a certain number of words that you're required to submit for a cover story like this? Yeah, I think it's about 800 to 1,000, something like that. Yeah, it's a lot. And do you then submit it to your editor and the editor gives you notes to, to you know clean up or anything? Um, first, my mentor looks at it. My mentor this time was Amy. She edits it a little and then goes into the drive where David gets it and does the final editing and puts it in the newspaper. Yeah, uh, mentor Amy Hines and uh, David Dan, who works with you guys as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so you guys uh, work uh, with your your editor, your mentors a lot. Um, Do you have another story that's uh, coming up that's for the next issue already? I don't know exactly what I'm doing yet. We're okay. <laughs> discussing it. No pressure. We won't, we won't make you say it on live radio right now. All right. You can again get that uh, article uh, about the development uh, in Livingston Manor. Uh, take a look at those preliminary drawings and see what you think. It's in the current issue of Manor Inc. And you can find it at manor-inc.org as well. We're here with the student journalists of Manor Inc. live in studio. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, Rachel Zuckerman will tell us about her personal story of her brother, Mikey, who has autism. This is Radio Chatskill. On this week's On the Media, from ticket sellers to Hollywood, 
corporate consolidation curtails creativity and it affects us consumers too. Streaming prices are going up. Your Netflix account, your Disney Plus account, your HBO Max account is going up. As they've been able to eliminate all the competition, they raise prices. On the next On the Media from WNYC. There's always a story behind the music, how the song was written, why the song was written. I'm Kathy Geary. Join me for Now and Then. Now and Then, Saturday afternoons at 3 on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every month, the student journalists of Manor, Inc. bring us their stories. We're talking to them live. Uh, they are the youth-driven, community-supported monthly newspaper published by the Livingston Manor Free Library. And this morning, we're joined live in studio by mentor Art Steinhauer, uh, Zoe McGee, who we just spoke to, and Rachel Zuckerman. And Rachel, um, your story is a very personal story in this month's issue of Manor, Inc. It's about your brother, Mikey, who has autism. Um, how did this story come about? Did you want to tell your brother's story? Well, um, I didn't think of it at first. I just wanted, I didn't have any ideas when the idea, like when Zoe said we came into a table at once every week, mm-hmm. um, like I didn't have any idea, but then it just popped up. Mm-hmm. Why don't I write a article about autism because I want to see people to see people with the d- disabilities not just autism like instead of outcast like normal people yeah and you experience it every day it's something close to you so you you kind of know how to uh, approach the story in a way right yeah. Yeah. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, as you mentioned in your article, autism affects an estimated one in 44 children in the United States today. And research shows that early intervention leads to positive outcomes later in life for people with autism. And I think what you did in this article is very interesting. You um, looked at the descriptions of characteristics of uh, that, that represent those categories that uh, people have for autism symptoms. Uh, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, and you use those descriptions uh, using your brother as an example. Yeah. Um, and can you can you kind of w- talk to the listeners a little bit about what those what those categories are? First one is communication patterns. Oh, yeah. Um, like communication patterns. Like my brother, th- there's different time, uh, types of like communication patterns. Like um, like body language, facial expressions, nonverbal communication, and my brother, he usually uses body language and kind of nonverbal communication. Like anytime when he's like quiet, calm, in his own thing, and just like minding his own business, it's better if we just leave him alone or else he'll get upset and we don't want him to get upset mm-hmm. how old is mikey he is eight years old and he has a twin oh really yeah and does his twin brother have any uh, symptoms of, of uh, autism no just mikey. Disorder? yeah okay and so is he your younger brother yeah yeah um and so growing up you've had to work with him and understand all of these things and you're bringing this to the readers and in, in mandarin and now our listeners too um, how about social skills and interaction? What what kinds of things um, can be hard to decode for some folks with autism, like Mikey? Like hand gestures and um, during a conversation and figures of speech, because and there's a thing that um, some people use, like cards, to like show people with. Uh, autism Mm -hmm. Um, like it's a picture of a cat and they want the uh, um, autism person to say or to point out that it's a cat Mm -hmm. 
But for Mikey, it's hard for him because he want. It's harder for him because we he doesn't hear us. Like, is he is he nonverbal? I wouldn't say he's nonverbal. He talks a lot. He just mums mumbles and jumbles, and he like, but takes everything out at once mm-hmm. that he has in his mind. Like, he doesn't actually. Does he form a full sentence, or is it more it like a word of, here or there? Like, um. Phrases, kind Phrases. of. Phrases. Yeah. And and do, does he have difficulty with eye contact or understanding your facial expressions? He has difficulties with that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm trying... Uh, one. Sometimes when he, I'm putting him to bed, I'm, like, telling him to look at me so I can say goodnight to him. And he's, like, rolling his eyes, putting his eyes in different directions, and, like, only for... A split second, he just looks at me and then just looks away immediately. So it's hard for him. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Rachel Zuckerman of Manor Inc. She's a student journalist, and we're talking to her today because she wrote an article about autism and her brother Mikey, who's eight. Uh, we're talking to uh, the student journalist live today in uh, Radio Chat Skill for Manor Inc. Um, Rachel, this is a very personal story for you. Um, you write that autistic folks may find it difficult to connect emotionally with other people, especially non-autistic people. And you say it happens a lot with Mikey because he gets very overwhelmed, like especially in a crowded space or when it gets loud. Yeah, he like when we used to live in the city, it would it was very hard for him because we would always go places and it was very crowded. People were walking everywhere, and anytime when we like went to restaurants uh, for a family dinner and it was so loud and crowded so much uh, like mikey was like uh, his space bubble i would kind of say was getting like tighter and tighter like he uh, like he was feeling uncomfortable and most of the time a lot of times actually he would scream and uh, younger me and uh, Mikey's twin, Yosef, we would feel embarrassed, but it's nothing to be embarrassed about because he's like, kind of like screaming, I don't want to be here mm-hmm. anymore. But when we moved to the country, he's been so much better because he has so much space to run around and stuff and f- actual fresh air to breathe and, and not too crowded spaces and mm. stuff. This has been a, a big improvement for him and for, for everybody, I imagine. You you mentioned also that you can relate to Mikey because he likes to be in these quiet places where he can breathe easily, right? Yeah. Um, and also, there are stereotype behaviors for f- folks with autism that are repeated over and over but don't seem to have a clear purpose. They can involve hand flapping, finger flicking, coin spinning, or lining up objects. Um, and they also tend to repeat the speech of other people. Um, does that... My, Effect. Is that what Mikey does? Does he do that? Yeah, he mostly he mostly does uh, lining up objects because he has so many Toy Story toys, like from the movies Toy Story, and how like Andy lines them up. He kind of like does that to like calm himself and stuff. And he has so many boxes that he puts all his toys in and lines up the boxes as well, mm-hmm. and also like lines up the toys who can't fit in the boxes. Did you receive some feedback about this story from anybody after being published? Yeah. Um, what did you hear? Um, a few teachers and um, I think it was just uh, a few teachers from my school. Like, um, there's uh, I have a band teacher and he has a son who is autistic like Mikey and uh, I think he's the same age as Mikey right now, but he has um, interest in challenges like Mikey does. Like I, as I said, Mikey likes putting stuff in boxes and taking them out. Well, I, I think I don't think I said taking the out part, but <laughs> still, yeah. Um, instead, um, uh, my band teacher's son likes to actually take a screwdriver, go to the light switch, and unscrew the light uh, switch 
protector. The plate, yeah. Yeah, but then he just puts it back on, and I'm like, maybe he'll be a handyman someday. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Would you mind reading uh, for our listeners that last paragraph of your article so that folks understand, um, you know, why it is that you wrote it? Well, it is my goal that more people understand autism. I don't want my brother to be viewed as a weird or an outcast. He belongs and is an important part of my family. And I just want to let everyone know that if next time you meet a person with AECD or other disabilities and they need help, don't neglect them. Care and help them. That's wonderful. I think it was a, it's a very uh, brave of you to put this out and um, also to inform everybody. You did a really good job here. You also list support levels for ASD. Do you want to tell yeah. folks what those uh, levels are? Uh, well, first is the level one requiring support. This level is the mildest or the highest functioning form of autism. Um, individuals may have difficulty understanding social cues and may struggle to form and maintain personal relationships. Uh, sometimes a child with le- level one autism may understand and speak in complete sentences, but have difficulty difficulty engaging back and forth conversation. Um, and then level two requiring substantial port- support. That's level two. Yeah. And what is, uh, what what are those um, associated, associated uh, characteristics? Social and communication and repetitive. Um, re- Repetitive behaviors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, present themselves more, uh, obviously, with children with a SC level two. And they maybe um, have more difficulty coping with changes in routine, which can cause some more challenging behavior. Then level three is requiring very substantial report. ASD level three is characterized by severe challenges in social communication, as well as extremely inflexible behavior. Children will be nonverbal or have use of only a few words of unintelligible speech. Um, you have a source here, the place for children with autism.com for more information about that. But also I encourage you guys who are listening to take a look at Rachel's article. Um, very impactful, very personal, very important, yeah. uh, on page nine of manor Inc right now, uh, on the stands and also online at manor org. Thank you so much, Rachel, for bringing that to us. And Zoe, thank you so much for your, the work you're doing too. And that cover story art, any other highlights in this issue of manor Inc that you want to make sure people I get to see i don't know if you heard that clap but those were the two two student journalists high-fiving yeah you did a great job guys you did a great job Art, right, anything else that you want to make sure folks take a look at in this month's issue yes uh, i point out the article by angie hund who is our uh, reporter on the roscoe beat about the award of the or sullivan renaissance silver feather award to roscoe to renovate riverside park this has been much needed for many years it was very overgrown with knotweed barely passable but Thanks to the grant of Sullivan Renaissance and the work of a lot of volunteers in Roscoe, it is being cleaned, it is being cleaned up. They have plans for a, a fenced-in dog park, for a, an ultimate discourse there. So it's really going to be quite a bring a, a lot of benefits, quite a, re, a renovation for downtown Roscoe. Lots happening uh, over over there in Livingston Manor, Roscoe, and you guys are covering it all in Manor, Inc. Um, thank you guys for coming in today. I think we're going to try to do this as a regular thing, if we can. We'll have a Manor, Inc. student journalist in the first Saturday of every month, and uh, love to talk to you guys and hear your stories. And, of course, there's more in the paper, which is available Art, it's pretty much everywhere around Sullivan County and the surrounding area, right? Yeah, mostly the Manor, uh, Manor and Roscoe, but again, online at manordink.org. You see the current issue and all the previous ones, too. And if uh, folks were interested, if there were other maybe students out there who may not know about uh, the, the paper and maybe are just hearing it or their, their parents are listening, uh, uh, how can uh, they get a hold of it? As I said, uh, you know, one of our problems is we have a high turnover because our reporters graduate, they graduate. school and move on and I said before, we welcome students from all over Sullivan County. They're welcome to join us. We also put in a pitch. We are very need for more mentors now. Those are volunteers who help with the paper and the students. And uh, we're a little short-staffed in that area. So any adults who would like to help out and become a journalist themselves are welcome to join us, too. What are the requirements for a mentor? What, what would they do on a typical sort of... Uh, it helps to be literate uh, <laughs> would be the first thing. But uh, they, again, what they do is help the students with their articles, set up interviews, develop questions, you know, help edit it after it's done, you know, come up with ideas and our, our presence in the community too. 
Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's again, the Manor Inc., the student journal is bringing our, their current stories from the paper every month. The youth driven community supported monthly newspaper published by the Livingston Manor Free Library. Thank you to Zoe McGee and Rachel Zuckerman and Art Steinhauer and all of the student journalists and mentors from the paper. We appreciate it. Thank you too. All right. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the incredible, edible and increasingly expensive egg. This is Radio Chatskill. Everyday Radio Catskill brings you local news and conversations on air. But did you know we have even more local programming on our Radio Catskill podcasts? Like Cooking in the Catskills with Chef Brett August. Or Close to Home with Leif Johansson. A deep dive into the upstate New York institutions and organizations that keep rural communities running. Radio Catskill podcasts at WJFFradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Aaron Bendich. Join me for Borscht Beat, the Jewish music show on Radio Catskill. Each week I share rare, forgotten, and classic recordings from Jewish musical traditions across multiple generations. From Yiddish folk songs to instrumental klezmer, Yiddish theater, and contemporary performances. It's a grand tour of many musical landscapes. That's Borscht Beat, an hour of Jewish music in the Catskills, Sunday afternoons at 1 on Radio Catskill. Move Sullivan, Sullivan County's free bus system, helps people get around. Whether they're going to work on time Monday through Friday, visiting doctors in Monticello, Liberty, Rock Hill, and Harris, or heading to class at SUNY Sullivan. Move Sullivan helps people shop in downtown Wurtsboro or Kaniunga Lake, or takes them to the Coach USA bus station so they can go even farther. Info at movesullivan.com or 845-434-4102. Move Sullivan, connecting our communities. Paid for by Sullivan County Government. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Prices have risen for just about everything over the last couple of years, but anyone shopping for groceries recently has probably noticed the cost of one item in particular, eggs. Buying eggs has become very expensive. In December 2022, the average price of a dozen eggs in the United States was $4.25, more than twice what they cost a year earlier, according to the New York Times. Experts said the increase in the price of eggs is likely due to a combination of factors, including higher feed and production costs for farmers and the spread of avian influenza, also known as bird flu, around the country. What do our local farmers say and how does this impact them? I teamed up with Farming Country's Rosie Starr to ask one local farmer Royal Rock, of Royal Walk Farm what's going on. But, um, gonna, my name is Tom Vanderwall, and uh, with my wife and I and our four-year-old daughter, we run Rock Royal Farm. Everybody's talking about eggs. <laughs> what, what can you kind of help us understand what's going on with with egg prices right now, and and why this is was happening? You see, kind of things like this happen with you know, the way that our farming has gone for the most part into the, like, industrial category and scale of farming, where if something arises, especially, like, in the form of disease um, or any issue like that, um, the system gets really affected really quickly because you have these concentrations of birds um, where, you know, it's like a three, three-quarters of your egg supply for a region come from, like, two or three farms. So it's like if one of those farms... All the birds get sick, then there goes a third of your egg supply, um, or pork, or cattle, or you know whatever, <clears throat> whatever animal is affected by whatever um, animal pandemic. Um, but yeah, so a lot of it is, I think, still kind of coming from this avian flu thing that's been going around, um, which is incredibly hard to avoid, uh, just because it can be carried by wild birds. So you have, you know, the scenario where. You know, a pigeon can fly into a facility and, you know, take a drink out of a waterer, and then all of a sudden you have 20,000 birds that are sick and dying. Um, and so this is a big part of the reason why there aren't very many eggs. The farmer's markets, at least where I shop in, uh, at this time of the year, Calicoon, on Sunday, uh, I have approached your stand and bought your eggs many times because they're rainbow eggs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're very good. Um, and I know that I'm paying more than like if I go to the grocery store and just buy standard eggs, but I appreciate the value that farmers like yourself bring to organically raised uh, poultry and you practice safe uh, you have a safe practices on your farm and what you what you get the birds to eat 
uh, is healthy. So I'm willing to pay a little bit more. And I know that a lot of folks aren't in that situation. Um, And I do have conversations in the grocery store with other customers that standing in front of the egg uh, aisle. And yes, it's We've gone from 79 cents to $2 to $4. And yeah, I noticed this year that the avian flu was probably the reason why poultry wasn't represented in a lot of um, county fairs. Um, that this- yeah, I mean, yeah, and that, that's a good point is to like, it's not just the eggs that are affected. It's also, you know, that kind of stuff, that kind of social and like, you know, pride in farming kind of stuff, but then also meat animals too. Yes, and uh, it's uh, Tim and I, we must have read the same thing this morning on our phones. The New York Times came out with several articles, and that was one on the morning page was what's going on with the price of eggs because folks, you know, there's a lot of uh, financial insecurity right now, and eggs are a basic part of life. Um, Easter is coming up, and that was my first reaction is if eggs are so unaffordable – at Easter time, how will, what will what will people give up to just buy a dozen eggs to yeah. uh, do Easter? You just find some egg shaped potatoes to hide in their yards. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. thing about eggs too is that it's a, there's a steady demand for eggs that you know it doesn't really ebb and flow so much, right? Yeah, totally. And like, I think another thing that's good to point out too is like you know our eggs have been eight dollars for two years now and. We kind of, with all of our pricing for all of our goods, everything is pegged directly to our costs. Um, it's not like a, we're not following market trends. We're not like, oh, like, you know, like the bacon market in Chicago, like the Chicago, like bacon exchange is like up to 79 cents a pound. So we better raise our price. Um, that's not really how I think any small farm operates, which can be advantageous in situations like this where, um, you know, we're pegging our pricing to our costs. So, like, if our costs don't change, like, even in this situation where, like, you have these companies that are raising prices, raising prices, raising prices, um, ours have stayed static because, you know, like, ours, our, our eggs are pretty much pegged to the cost of feed. Um, and when the feed went up to, I guess it was 2021, um, we raised our prices then, you know, to make the egg program viable still. But you have, you know, in a neighborhood smaller farming system like that you have a little more protection from you know catastrophe basically because like if there's 30 people producing eggs and you know like 10 of them get avian flu or you know what what again whatever it is you still have you know like 70 percent of your populace your farming team producing food for that community so like it is a good a good thing when stuff like this happens to think about like but just how, you know, America approaches food in general. Yes, well, and also let's take an opportunity now to talk about what type of chickens, what kind of layers you have. I, there's so many varieties. Uh, tell us what you have there on the farm. Yeah, so we keep um, our flock kind of changes year to year um, as we cycle through groups. So we kind of try to change the breeds up so we can kind of keep track of, okay, like we know that we got – a batch of Novagens in 2021, so, like, we won't get them in 2022. So we know, like, okay, the all the Novagens are now two years old. Um, but, yeah, we keep, I mean, the reason why our eggs are rainbow eggs, um, we keep about usually, like, five or six different breeds, um, all of which are, you know, primarily selected because they are hardy and will deal well in a pasture situation because that's kind of their whole deal is they're on pasture when there's grass and then they're kind of in our garden in their pasture pens um, over the winter. So they have to kind of be winter hardy and not like a, a factory a factory bird. And speaking of winter, how is everybody in the barnyard doing at this moment? It's seven degrees outside with wind and a, a little dusting of snow. Yeah, I'm actually looking out the window now, and the, the two Great Pyrenees that kind of guard all the chickens are running around in circles, and most of the chickens are in the coops today. Not a lot of grazing going on at seven degrees. Oh, sorry, smart, um, smart birds. Four, it's four degrees at our place. <laughs> um, another thing we noticed too was uh, that the egg shortages are driving up demand for uh, chickens themselves. Maybe not from expert farmers like you, but from more regular consumers. Um, it's not um, well. How difficult it is it to raise a chicken? I kind of feel like is this a good idea? <laughs> 
You know, it's. I think. I think it's a good thing for anybody to get involved in their food supply. Um, I wholeheartedly encourage anybody that comes up to me is like, oh, you know, like how much of a pain in the butt is it to raise these things? Like I was thinking about getting someone's like, yeah, you should totally do it. And you know, worst case scenario, you get sick of it and you can sell them to somebody else, or you can you know turn them into stew. Um, but I think, I mean, in any like any capacity that anyone can get into creating their own food. I think gives people a healthier perspective on just, you know, like appreciation and respect for just like how much goes into an egg where it's like when an egg is valued at, you know, 15 cents at the grocery store, it's like that's what its value is to you if you have no interaction with how it was made. Yeah. But once you like, oh man, like Fox got in and killed half my chickens or like I'm running out of feed and I have to drive through a blizzard to get more feed, you know, like if you're not dealing with these things directly, like that value is lost on you because you're just not aware of it. So the value of any given food product, like carrot, egg, or whatever, is just like the money that you're paying for it as opposed to like truly understanding like what goes into food. We know it's freezing outside right now and it's February, but I'm sure you're already looking towards spring. And uh, are there other headwinds for you uh, and other farmers this spring? I mean, I know diesel prices are still high. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it is just, it's kind of, everything. It's still like the echoes of supply chain shortage, labor shortage. Um, luckily for us, um, you know, like the demand is definitely there. Um, so it's really just a matter of navigating the path to a good production year. So that's kind of the, the, the hurdle and the goal. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, we'll see you at the farmer's market. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was Tom Vanderwall of Royal Rock Farm in Walton, New York, talking to Rosie Starr and myself. And Rosie Starr and the team are on deck and up next with Farm and Country, followed by Catskill Character and all locally produced programming between now and 4 o'clock right here on Radio Catskill. Uh, and a reminder that wind chill warning is still in effect for our area until noon. It's going to warm up today to about 18, uh, warmer than yesterday, a low of 12 tonight with cloudy skies. The winds have died down and which should only be about 5 to 10 miles an hour. And tomorrow, mostly cloudy, high of 44. Mostly cloudy skies tomorrow night with a low of 30. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. book reader, and even if you're not, I'd like to invite you to join me, Aaron Hicklin, every Sunday at noon for Shelf Life on WJFF Radio Catskill, a show about books and the people who love them. Each episode, my guest picks two of their favorite books. I read them, and then we get together to talk about them. That's Shelf Life on Sundays at noon on WJFF Radio Catskill. the same old relationships. Let's shake things up. Invite that stranger in through the window to make you banana bread. Or, hey, invite an ex to move in with you and your family. Everything's possible on the next Selected Shorts with me, Meg Wallitzer. Sunday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Custom by Sullivan Mercantile. Home and office textile decor. Carefully conceived, thoughtfully designed, and locally built with skill. Available online at Sullivan-Mercantile.com. From the Hurleyville Performing Arts Center, celebrating the environmental and social diversity of the Catskill region through performance, film, and visual art. HurleyvilleArtsCenter.org. And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. 
WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org.